This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. I'm Steve Cohen. I'm I'm a partner of Lisa's at Rubin and Rudman, and I've had the good fortune to work over the years with both Patty and Lisa, and um, very pleased to be with you here today. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about uh, the basic rules of mass health um, for the next, I guess, 45 minutes, um, and then Lisa is going to talk about more sophisticated planning um, when she when she comes on at the end. So. In terms of mass health, whether you're doing advanced planning and thinking ahead of uh, your clients may need eligibility, or you're actually filing an application, there are a few things that you need to keep in mind. Obviously, you need to have an understanding of the law, both state and federal statutes and uh, regulations of the mass health uh, agency. Um, you also want, need to understand when your client is actually applying, what is MassHealth going to be looking at um, in determining eligibility? And lastly, um, how is MassHealth likely to interpret what they're seeing? Um, and underlying all of that, I guess, there are two things that are important for establishing eligibility. Um, and we're going to be talking about those in a number of different ways this afternoon. One is, um, are your countable assets, and that's a regulatory term, um, below the mass health limit? So if you have too much, you're not eligible. And secondly, have you or your spouse transferred assets within the last five years in a way that's going to uh, impact your eligibility. And everything really boils down to, to those two issues, one way or another. Um, so let's first talk about um, assets. So first of all, the thing to understand is that MassHealth is placing a limit on how many countable assets you could have. For a single person, that's $2,000. For a couple, the applicant uh, is allowed the 2000 and their spouse is allowed approximately $148,000 of countable assets. However, there are a number of assets that are not counted, and it's important to understand what those are because you're basically saying to MassHealth, well, my client owns these assets or has an interest in these assets, but because of the way the law is written, you can't count those in determining whether my client meets the eligibility criteria. Um, one of the most important non-countable assets is the primary residence. Um, 
However, a um, couple of things to keep in mind, just because it's a non-countable asset does not mean it's a protected asset. The state may well have the ability to lien it and recover against that at death. In addition, the house is only a non-countable asset if it's in Massachusetts and if the equity is less than a million dollars. If the spouse is living there, you don't have to worry about that equity limit, but for a single person, you have to have equity of less than a million. You also need to indicate on the application that you intend to return home. And that is a box that you can check off. It's an indication of your subjective intentions, not whether it's medically feasible for you to go home. In addition, other notable non-countable assets uh, are a business essential for self-support, a prepaid funeral, a burial account of uh, $1,500, a pension established uh, by an employer. So if you're working and you have a 401k with your employer, for example, that would be a non-countable asset, and that could obviously be significant. Another category of assets that are not countable are inaccessible assets. So if there's an asset you don't have legal access to, then MassHealth should not be counting that in terms of determining eligibility. The lack of access might be because it's subject to some, a legal proceeding. So if someone else has died and you're an heir of an estate and it's going through probate, you don't have legal access to that. You also, if someone's incapacitated and there's a bank account in their name and there's no power of attorney, there may not be legal access to those funds and therefore they're non-countable. However, you have to, you can't just sit back and say, I can't get the money. You would have to be filing a petition for conservatorship to show that you're trying to gain access to those funds. If an asset was subject to litigation, that could also be inaccessible. Um, and in some instances, uh, real estate owned by a number of people could be deemed legally inaccessible. So for example, your client has a Cape house that he owns with his four siblings. They're not willing to sell. You might be able to advocate that that's an inaccessible asset and therefore non-countable. Jointly held assets are another category you need to understand. If it is a bank account jointly held by the applicant and someone else, the presumption is that all of those funds are um, owned by the applicant. And unless you can rebut it, MassHealth's going to say the applicant owns all the money. If it's any other kind of an asset that's jointly held, so whether that's stocks or bonds or real estate, it's the opposite presumption. And as long as the name is, other name has been on there for more than five years, MassHealth will respect that the other joint owners own proportional shares of that asset. In terms of countable assets for a spouse, you know, keep in mind that it doesn't matter whose name is on the asset when you're applying. MassHealth treats a married couple as a unit. And as I said a few minutes ago, the applicant can have $2,000, the spouse $148,000. And at least when you're initially applying, it doesn't matter whether the applicant's assets are above that, as long as you move the assets to the spouse's name eventually. Um, 
and you're below those limits, they're, they're eligible. Another area of assets that's important to consider are assets held in a trust. Um, so Mass Health, as you know, Lisa and Patty will, will discuss later, scrutinizes trust very closely. And they want to be able to argue that despite the assets being in a trust, they are countable. First of all, an asset in a revocable trust funded by the applicant or spouse is always countable. Secondly, even if the trust is irrevocable, if there are any circumstances where a trustee can pay principal to the applicant or spouse, those trust assets are countable. So the only way that a trust is non-countable when it's been funded by the applicant or spouse is if it's irrevocable and there's no access to principal under any circumstances. And that has to be very clear. The income can be payable to the applicant or spouse and the income would then be countable, but that does not mean that the principal is countable. There are different sets of rules for a trust funded by a third party. So if a uh, grandparent funded a trust for your client who's applying for mass health, even though there may be the trustee might have discretion to pay principal, as long as those payments are not mandatory, the trust should be non-countable. But as with anything, it's critical you review the trust terms carefully because there are a lot of traps for the unwary. Mass Health likes nothing better than to take some random boilerplate and argue that that language, despite other language you might have about principle, renders the trust accountable asset. So you need to be very careful with that. There are some exceptions to the trust rules. Um, if it is someone is under 65 years old, for example, um, they can fund a trust for their own benefit with access to principle, um, as long as it was funded before they were 65, and as long as the trust has a so-called payback provision to the state. As long as you have that, then uh, and the trust was funded early enough that that the trust assets will be non-countable. There's an additional exception for uh, trusts that are referred to as um, pooled charitable trusts. And um, the law on this was recently changed. So these are trusts that are managed by a not-for-profit. Um, the one that I typically use is the Plan of Mass in Rhode Island. And currently, an applicant to transfer their assets to the trust. Um, the assets are non-countable. They're managed by the not-for-profit and can be used to supplement what MassHealth pays for. And at death, the state is paid back. However, a recent change in the law now says that in, I believe it's going to be as of uh, February or maybe it's March 1st, 2024, I think it's 60 days after the end of the end of uh, 2023, um, you only can use a pooled trust if you, if you fund it before you're 65. Patty might speak more to that, whether there's where, you know, NALA members are working behind the scenes to try to get that, um, to get legislation in place that would um, override that mass health regulation. But you have to keep an eye on that. We basically have uh, 
another eight months or so of being able to utilize that for our older clients. Um, the income rules um, are pretty straightforward. Uh, for an individual applying for Mass Health uh, who's single, basically all of their income gets paid to the nursing home like a deductible. So you pay your Social Security um, to the uh, nursing home each month, and that that figure is called the patient paid amount. And then nursing home, excuse me, then Mass Health pays the remainder of the bill to the nursing home. Um, there are a number of deductible deductions that are allowed. Um, the applicant is allowed to retain approximately $73 a month for um, personal items. Obviously, that's not going to get you very much. Um, in addition, MassHealth wants the applicant to retain their private insurance. Like, so if they have a Blue Cross supplemental policy and the premiums are $500 a month, MassHealth is going to allow the applicant a $500 deduction in the patient paid amount calculation so that the applicant has that extra income available to pay the premiums. If the applicant has dependents, there may be a deduction allowed for that as well. Now, the income rules are a little bit more complicated when there's a married couple and you have a spouse in the community. First of all, the spouse in the community is allowed to retain all of their own income, regardless of how much it is. So you could have a spouse in the community who's an attorney making $300,000 a year, that's hers. She doesn't have any, it's not going to affect her husband's eligibility. She's not going to have a uh, financial re a requirement that she contributes some of that. For, for more of our cases, more typical is that the spouse is no longer working and he or she may have modest income. And there's a floor where the spouse in the community is entitled to a minimum amount of income of roughly $2,400. If her actual income is less than that, so if she has $1,400 of Social Security, MassHealth is going to allow her to keep $1,000 of the applicant's income each month, and that income allowance would be an additional deduction in the calculation of the patient paid amount. In some circumstances, um, the spouse in the community may have her own um, uh, medical needs, either home care or assisted living costs. And if her income is not high enough, you may through advocacy be able to require Mass Health to allow the spouse in the nursing home to give more up to all of his income to the community spouse, depending on her needs. Sometimes that's you're able to do that through an application process. Um, the maximum a caseworker is allowed to grant a community spouse is $3,700. Um, if, if it's more than that you're seeking, you're going to have to do that through an appeal. So basically, 
On one end, high income spouses in the community get to keep all their income. If it's a low income community spouse, they're likely gonna be entitled to some of the nursing home spouse's income. And um, that is important to understand. So the next area that I wanna talk about are uh, transfers of assets. And there's so much of what we do relates to this question of what transfers can you make? Um, if transfers have already been made, what is the impact on eligibility? Um, and it's a very tricky area. Often clients are gonna come to you where there already have been transfers made and you gotta figure out what do you do with the hand your client's dealing you and how do you put them in the best position possible? So few things to keep in mind in understanding the transfer rules. First of all, if you transfer assets, you're making yourself and your spouse ineligible for a period of time. Secondly, um, the way that MassHealth calculates how long you're ineligible by is by a number which they have determined is the average cost of care in the state. And in 2023, that's approximately $13,000 a month. So in other words, for every $13,000 an applicant or spouse has given away, they have made themselves ineligible for one month. So as an example, a $39,000 transfer would create a potential ineligibility period of three months. Um, one other element of the law says that the transfer has to have been made with the intention of obtaining mass health. In general, and, and you would think that would be very helpful because many people spend their money or transfer it or use it for someone else's benefit without any thought that they might someday need to apply for MassHealth. However, MassHealth's knee-jerk reaction is to assume that any transfer was done with the, with the intent to obtain MassHealth. And they put a heavy burden on the applicant to prove otherwise. So an example of a good case or a good fact pattern where you might be able to establish that a gift was not made with the intent of eligibility is first, your client had a medical situation that was sudden, unexpected, and could not have been anticipated. So someone who was in good health, doing great, 75 years old, has a stroke, lightning bolt out of the sky. Over the years, say, in terms of their gifting, they had paid for the first year of college for each of their grandchildren. Arguably, you know, we would try to make the argument that it would have been impossible for them to have done them with the intent of getting mass health. There should be no ineligibility period. It's questionable whether you'd be successful, but I would like my chances on an appeal with that set of facts. I would contrast that with someone who had Alzheimer's disease 
and was paying for their grandchildren's college education. Arguably, they should have known that they would need to apply for Mass Health someday. So you got to look at the facts, and again, you advocate as best you can. And if intent is the only thing you have to argue that there's no should be no ineligibility period, then that's what you're going to argue. So the the other um, the other question. Well, I should say this: there are a number of exceptions where Mass Health does not impose a period of ineligibility. And for those transfers, we refer to them that they're permissible transfers. So one of the most important permissible transfers is that an applicant can give their spouse assets and there's never an issue there. So even at the last minute, if every penny was in the name of the nursing home applicant, they can take all their assets give them to their spouse in the community, and MassHealth will not have any issue with it. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean you're out of the woods. You still have to make sure that the spouse's assets, of countable assets, are below the $148,000 limit. But at least you know that the transfers between spouses are never an issue. In addition, you can transfer assets either directly to or into trust for the sole benefit of a disabled child or into a trust or, or directly to any disabled individual who's under 65. Um, I also mentioned that there's no transfer penalty currently for transfers to a pooled trust. Um, there are certain specific transfer exceptions for your home. So you can give your home to a, a child who's under 21, your spouse. You can give your home to a so-called caretaker child who is a child who lived in the house with you for two years, provided complete care that but for that child you wouldn't have, you would have needed to go to a nursing home and um in that instance mass health will allow the transfer also you can transfer your home to a sibling who's lived with you for a year and who has a legal interest in the house so again when your client is applying you'd look to see that any of these transfer exceptions apply where we can transfer assets out of the applicant's name to reduce the assets below the asset limit without creating an ineligibility period. One other sort of area to be careful in, clients often get confused and they think, well, I know the IRS lets you to make annual gifts of up to $17,000 a year. So I've been doing that to all my kids, and I know that's not a problem. They're right that the IRS is fine with your making those gifts, but that doesn't mean Mass Health is okay with it. Those IRS gift regulations have nothing to do with Mass Health. In addition, you know, there may be things that 
the client doesn't consider a gift, paying for someone's wedding, lending money to a child. Mass Health, again, looks at everything through the lens of it being an impermissible transfer. And it's going to be our job to uh, explain that otherwise. You may also, a client's um, financial situation might be messy, where things like a child's been paying for things the parent needs, and then the child reimburses them every couple of months. You, that's probably going to be okay, but it's going to need to be explained. Or, you know, you hate when you're doing an application, you hate to see clients who live on a cash basis and, you know, there are just hundreds of cash withdrawals. MassHealth may well think that those are gifts as well. So um, keeping all that in mind, I want to talk briefly about how does, you know, how's MassHealth going to calculate this ineligibility period if there are gifts? So the first thing you need to understand, and this goes back to something that I said at the very beginning, you need to understand when you apply, what is MassHealth going to be looking at? So MassHealth is entitled to look at financial statements going five years back from the date you're applying. And they're only allowed to impose a period of ineligibility for a transfer that happened within that five years. So to say it another way, if you transfer assets in you know 2017, May of 2017, and you're applying in June of 2023, you don't have an issue because MassHealth is not going to see that. But if you apply within five years of having made a transfer, you have to report it, and MassHealth is going to see it. And the way they're going to calculate the ineligibility period is as follows. Um, MassHealth says that the ineligibility period starts when the applicant is, is, in quote, otherwise eligible. And they take that to mean that the applicant is in the nursing home and they are otherwise spent down below the asset limit and they have entered into a period where they have not paid the nursing home. So... As an example, if they, if you transferred assets in, say, March of uh, 2021, and let's say you transferred $39,000 in March of 2021, and in April of 2023, you're in a nursing home, and you spend down your assets in June of 2023, there's going to be a three-month ineligibility period. That's 39000 divided by 13000 And it's going to start June 1st, 2023, when your assets were below the mass health limit and you have stopped paying the nursing home. That's obviously problematic because now we've got a period of three months when mass health won't pay. The client has no money left. So at that point, your choice is either cure the transfer, meaning someone pays it back to the applicant, or 
accept the ineligibility period and negotiate with the nursing home about how much you owe them for those three months. So it's best if possible to avoid that scenario. We can't always, but if you can, it's definitely better. Um, another point I want to make on this transfer question is that there's no cap, no actual cap on the length of the ineligibility period. However, if you follow the rules, there is an effective cap of five years. And what I mean by that is, if you transfer assets, say a million dollars, and you wait to apply until month 61 following the transfer, so meaning more than five years, you are in effect, the most you can be ineligible for, regardless of how big that transfer was, is five years. Because remember, MassHealth can't impose an ineligibility period before that happened on a transfer before the five-year period. However, compare that with someone who transfers the million and applies on month um, 59. That is, I'm just doing this on my calculator. Uh, suffice it to say, it's a lot. That is um, 76 months of ineligibility. So, um, and then the more the asset, the greater the ineligibility period. So you have to really be careful with that. If you're doing proper planning, you can tell your clients, okay, we're going to transfer this asset. We just need to pay for your care or you need to stay out of a nursing home or pay privately, I guess, for the next five years. And then after that, we're in the clear. Um, I want to just mention briefly um, liens and estate recovery in terms of the basic mass health rules. So I mentioned mass health allows you to keep your primary residence, you know, if you meet, otherwise meet the, the rules I mentioned. However, they will place a lien on that house. If it's sold during your lifetime, they will be entitled to be reimbursed for what they paid on your behalf. In addition to that um, lien, MassHealth has a right, after, uh, again, of a state recovery at death. So if you die and you've been on MassHealth, they can recover against your estate for um, amounts they paid on your behalf. However, their rights of recovery are limited to probate assets. So if the asset passes outside of probate, MassHealth is out of luck. In addition, um, you know, if the probate assets are under $25,000, MassHealth will not pursue that, which was a, a nice change, you know, for smaller estates that came into the law. And there are also certain circumstances with compelling um, sympathetic situations where, you um, uh, you can argue undue hardship and mass health will not recover. But again, when you're applying for mass health, you always have to keep in mind that question, um, even if I'm getting eligibility, 
Am I leaving anything exposed to a state recovery after death? Because, you know, you can do all this great work and get eligibility, but if after the applicant dies, you, um, Mass Health makes a claim against their asset, the client is going to be less pleased, obviously, with your, with your work. Um, I want to talk uh, briefly um, about what I would call uh, basic Medicaid planning strategies. Um, Lisa's going to get into the more sophisticated, advanced um, planning. So, you know, what I'm discussing is going to be, you know, on the more um, elementary level. Um, first thing I want to say is that um, just because your client comes to you about obtaining mass health eligibility, just because you see that there is a path towards getting eligibility, part of our job, I think, is advising clients whether it's worth it to obtain mass health. So in terms of advanced planning, you know, I'll sometimes get clients that come to me with who have a significant estate and they're worried about this issue. And part of the planning is helping them think through is given their other legal concerns with their estate, whether that's a state tax liability um, or whatever income taxes, um, does it really make sense to plan for this? Is there any scenario where you can really see them eventually applying? And then when someone is actually considering applying, do you bother doing it? And you want to think about how long is the applicant going to live that it's going to be worthwhile to go through what can be an arduous process? And secondly, are there other indirect costs of applying? So particularly with a couple um, and you're transferring assets, there if there's retirement accounts involved, you might be incurring a significant income tax liability in, in pursuing eligibility. So you really have to weigh that tax liability or other consequence of squeezing your clients through the hoops to get eligibility, weigh that against how, how many months of mass health benefits do they have to get before your work proves worthwhile to them. Um, but otherwise, the basic planning is, um, you know, for advanced planning, so someone is relatively healthy and they're looking to the future, you're talking about giving away some of the assets in, in most circumstances. And you need to be thinking about, um, you know, what's the best tool to do that? Often the best tool in giving away assets we might be an irrevocable trust, particularly if that's an appreciated asset. Um, but, you know, that's something we often consider. You also need to keep in mind one last sort of caution, you know, by giving away the assets, are you making your client financially vulnerable? And you know, the client really might highly value protecting an inheritance for children. But still, if you if your client by making a transfer is going to put themselves at risk or make themselves vulnerable, you certainly want to point that out. And you don't want to be, you know, the worst, I suppose, is that the lawyer is suggesting the gift 
and hasn't explained the risk and they've put the client in that position. So this is ultimately the client's decision, but they need to understand the consequences of the gift. Um, planning for more immediate eligibility, first of all, involves spending down assets. So for a single person, you want to prepay for anticipated expenses like a funeral. Um, you could pay off debt. You could pay off other in anticipated bills on real estate. Um, you might fund a pool charitable trust. Um, you'd be looking to see if any of the exceptions to the transfer rules apply, where um, you could uh, make a gift and you'd have no ineligibility period. For, you know, but saying all that, there's not that much you can do for a single person in spending down their assets um, or to protect assets as an inheritance for some someone else. For a couple, there are many more planning opportunities. Um, first of all, if you're married, you can move everything into the other spouse's name. So that's that's a huge, um, that's a very important tool to, to be able to take advantage of. And then secondly, the spouse in the community um, can also spend down those assets, whether that's paying off a mortgage if there was one, making repairs on their house. Um, but the other thing that we often advise clients, and Lisa will talk more about this later, is having the spouse in the community purchase a certain kind of an annuity. And basically MassHealth allows them to take what would otherwise be countable assets and convert it into a protected income stream through this annuity. In other circumstances where the spouse in the community has high expenses, and this would typically be if the spouse in the community is in an assisted living, which is expensive, if, they're, if the couple's um, medical expenses are higher than their combined income, MassHealth might allow that spouse to keep more than $148,000. That's called an increased resource allowance appeal. And again, Lisa will speak more about that. So with a single person, there's a few things you can do, but not that much at the last minute. But certainly with a couple, if their countable assets are below a million, an attorney can often get immediate eligibility. Again, the question is, does it make sense to do that? Because you certainly are going to have some hoops to jump through. But if it does, you often can get immediate eligibility while completely protecting the assets for the spouse in the community. Last thing I just want to mention on the, the planning, you need to keep in mind what might happen if the spouse in the community dies before the spouse in the nursing home. And you need to update that person's estate plan because you want to make sure that if the spouse in the community dies first, nothing is going back 
directly to the nursing home spouse. And most couples, as you guys know, their typical will is going to leave everything for the benefit of the surviving spouse or typical uh, pour over trust. There is a very um, specific kind of an estate plan that elder law attorneys utilize in order to address that concern. And it's referred to as a will with a testamentary trust. Lisa will talk about the details of that. But the bottom line is you need to be anticipating that possibility. Um, finally, post-eligibility, once you've gotten the um, applicant accepted, you can circle back with the community spouse and reconsider whether he or she should make any transfers. Two things I want to just make as a last point. Post-eligibility transfers by the community spouse do not affect mass health eligibility for the spouse in the nursing home. So if after you've gotten the application accepted, the community spouse decides to fund an irrevocable trust, that's not going to affect her husband's eligibility. Secondly, although MassHealth is very strict about the community spouse's assets being below $148,000, that is only true up until the application is approved. Post-eligibility, if the community spouse's assets increase above that amount, whether that's through her savings or she gets an inheritance or she wins the lottery, whatever it is, if suddenly she has a million dollars, that is not going to be a problem for the spouse who is on mass health. So that's one last important point to mention. Um, it looks like uh, my time is up. Um, I know there's a lot more that Patty and Lisa have to share, but I if you have more if you have more, Steve, because there aren't as many cases this year as last year. So if you have if you want to finish up, I mean if you're finished, fine. No, I, I think I am. I mean, I'm happy if people have any questions about anything that I explained, I'm happy to take some time right now to answer those. Um, I think that a lot of um I feel good about the basic rules I laid out on the planning. There's certainly more to talk about, but that's really, you know, Lisa's going to get into more of the nuts and bolts and details of more nuanced, sophisticated planning you could consider. Um, I don't know if, Lisa, were there any questions that came in? Um, I, I didn't see any. I did not see any questions. Okay. Um, then I guess... Uh, I would, I don't know if Lisa or Patty, if there's anything that you felt, you know, you guys are, you know, so well versed in this, anything that you felt that we might want, I didn't emphasize on the basic rules that I could elaborate on or. No, I was just wondering why I, I probably made more sense, Lisa, for you to go second because yeah. he kept referring that like, and Lisa will, and Lisa will, and. Here comes Patty. I can, finish, I can round out your talk too. So that's okay. All righty. All right. Well, I'm going to stand for a little bit and then uh, I'll I'll sign off in about 15. But All right, let's see if I can figure out this share screen.